Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. (laughs) All right. Hello, dear readers. We are going to dip into the great literature of the world today with Pale Fire by Vladimir Vladimirovich Nabokov. 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 Vladimir Nabokov. Very nice. (laughs) There is a disagreement about how to pronounce uh, his last name. I've heard it Nabokov. I've always said it Nabokov. So we went to the source of all sources, Wikipedia, to check. And now we're going to play it for you so you can hear that it is uh, Nabokov. Here we go. Vladimir Vladimirovich Nabokov. Nabokov. Not Nabokov either. Nabokov. I will do my best to pronounce it correctly. Yeah, we'll see. (laughs) So now that that really important point is taken care of, Nabokov is a great, great writer. If you've never heard of him, definitely would do yourself well to read some of his books, including Pale Fire, and also his most famous book, Lolita, which probably a lot of people have heard of, either as the novel itself or the movie that Stanley Kubrick made in the 50s with Peter Sellers and James Mason and Sue Lyons played the title role. Anyway... I like Pale Fire better than Lolita myself. I, I feel that Lolita is pretty problematical. But really, before we get into dissecting the novels, maybe I should say a little bit about uh, Nabokov's life, right? <laughs> yeah, this is going to be a struggle the whole <laughs> yeah. time. I've got to get it right here. I've got to get it right. He was born in 1899, uh, and he died in 1977. And he was born in Russia. And his family was at the top of the heap, really. They were part of the government. They were important going back generations, important figures in the government. They were very, very rich. In fact, he inherited an estate um, when he was 16 from his maternal uncle, uh, this really beautiful estate. So he remembers being uh, driven by the chauffeur in the limousine to school. When he was very young, he had governesses, nannies, tutors. Uh, So he was fluent in Russian, French, and English. Wow. Although Russian was his native language, but still, he was uh, fluent in both those languages. So he was extremely well-educated. That makes total sense, which I didn't know anything about him. His, his command of the English language is incredible, so it makes sense that he had to have had this oh, amazing education. Better than most people who speak only the, the one language. You know? <laughs> which, of course, the, the multilingual ability that he had probably made him a better English speaker. Right. You know? So anyway, they had this beautiful, amazing, rich life. And the revolution struck, the February Revolution. And now I was never really that clear about this, that there were two revolutions in Russia in 1917. The first one was in February, and that's when the Tsar abdicated. And a new government took over that was uh, planning to build a constitutional democracy. So they were working on a constitution, all stuff that we like, right? And Nabokov's father, he actually was a secretary in the Russian provisional government at the time in St. Petersburg. So he was working to that end. And his family were, and Nabokov himself, to the end of his life, was very pro-democracy. So then what happened, which I think we're all kind of familiar with, and you know more about it than I do, is the October Revolution which is when the Bolsheviks, led by Lenin, swept in and knocked out the constitutional government because, well, the constitutional government was, it was torn, it was not strong, it was brand new, and, you know, and there was still uh, a lot of uh, civil war going on in the country. So the Bolsheviks were able to sweep in, take over, and those were the Red Russians. Nabokov's father was a white Russian, as they called them, but he wasn't a monarchist. 
which were also white Russians. So just to be clear there. And so uh, Nabokov's family fled. He had two sisters and a brother, plus his, his father and mother. So first they went to England for a short while and, he, and Nabokov was still, he was about 18. So he was college age. So he studied at Cambridge for a few years. And then the family moved to Berlin where they did have roots, I guess, uh, on one side of his family, he had German heritage, so it kind of made sense that they would, would go there. So they get there, and Nabokov is, doesn't have any money, and a lot of the people who fled from Russia, who had been super wealthy, suddenly were dirt poor and scraping for money, and you know he did various jobs. But the most interesting thing that happened there in 1922 was his father was shot and killed by an assassin while he was trying to protect the actual target of that assassin, they were trying to get the leader of the Constitutional Democratic Party that was in exile because they were still agitating over there in Germany, even as late as 1922. So he tried to protect this guy, and he got shot by the assassin, which, of course, scarred Nabokov for life and comes up in his work. Yeah, what a drama, and we'll speak more to that. Yeah, this will come up in This is a Fire. huge revelation for me because I didn't know this until you looked this up and started telling me about Nabokov's life yeah. just now. Yeah, so. yeah and I, I read a biography of him and uh, various articles on him, but I don't remember that. Yeah. So uh, obviously my mind is a sieve. Nabokov, during when World War II then started, his family then fled to the United States except for his brother. And he ended up being uh, killed in a concentration camp for speaking out against Hitler's regime. Wow. So that's pretty sad. During his time in Europe, Nabokov met his wife, Vera. And Vera is huge in his life. It's one of those things where she stands in the shadow of this genius willingly. She was his biggest supporter. It was She did kind of efface herself because she was a brilliant woman. And she actually was his translator. Oh. Uh, when he wrote his books in Russian, the early books. And then later he began writing in English, so she needed to translate. But I'll just give the downside first. Or the, is he said he had prejudice against women writers and he just didn't really think they were that good and he didn't like Jane Austen and at this time he was teaching by the time he got to the United States he got a post teaching at Wellesley College which that was basically where he worked his entire working life and he taught literature classes and writing and so forth and so he he eventually reread Mansfield Park and grudgingly admitted it was good and he put it in his syllabus. Huh. <laughs> oh, funny. And there were, there were a few other writers, uh, women writers, he thought uh, Mary McCarthy was good. Uh, there's a Russian poet that he thought was a genius. And so that was just really interesting that he just had some macho. He definitely did, you know. And intellectualism. Also, and also this is like, what a slap in the face. He said that his ideal translator would have been a man, not a woman. And certainly not a Russian-born What the woman. heck? Yeah, I know. And here's Vera working yeah. away, doing the translations, oh you know. Oh, my God. Uh, oh, she, she, he was going to, he was really upset when he was writing Lolita. He thought it was terrible. And he was going to burn the manuscript and she stopped him from doing it. I mean, she was amazing. She was yeah. a great, great wife. And I think he knew that. But he was one of those kind of selfish geniuses. And he didn't have to worry because she was always going to be there. So He sounds like he had his assholeness. And he knows. Like, you can tell in his writing that he knows he's kind of an asshole. Yeah. Because a lot of his themes have to do with, like, narcissism and self, self-delusion self and aggrandizement and stuff. So right. he's, like, trying to dissect himself. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is I think he had one of those intellects that was just like a locomotive train that's just like... 
vroom, you yeah. know? Because he also, one of his uh, pastimes that he loved was chess problems. Hmm. And and again, everything that he loved or was interested in come through in his books all the time, explicitly as themes. So there's a, there are books that have the chess problems. In fact, in Pale Fire, they play chess. That's true. You yeah. Know? And the other thing that he was big, big on was uh, lepidiatry, which is the uh, study of butterflies. Right. And he would catch butterflies. In fact, he came to Ashland, Oregon hmm. at one point when he was finishing Lolita, and he ran around catching butterflies. Oh, he was a big butterfly huh. collector. And that's in this book as well. There's yep. some very symbolic motifs of butterflies. He was really uh, had those things that just came up. And, and the other thing that I, I uh, find really interesting and. I don't know, I think it makes his writing really rich, though I don't, you don't see it, it isn't that he brings it up that much explicitly, but he had stenesthesia, and do you know what that is? Yeah, when your senses are interconnected in yeah. certain ways that you can associate or like actually see sounds or see colors when you hear hear a sound. Right, like right, that. and or no, that numbers have are colored, yeah. that kind of thing. and Vera was too. Whoa, okay. Is that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. Um, basically, he spent his life writing his novels because uh, his position at Wellesley specifically left him time to do his writing because, I mean, he was a major writer in the right. canon of English literature at this point. And he, yeah, he was recognized in his time and everything. Yeah, he was. He was recognized in his time and continues to be great. I don't know. I don't hear much about him. I don't like hear podcasts about Nabokov. Really or... interesting life, though. I didn't expect this. Yeah. <laughs> of course, there's a lot of other stuff that went on, but that's the, the highlights, I, I think. Oh, yeah, and they had one child, and the, the child died, which is very sad, so he didn't have children. That's in this book, too. What the yeah. heck? Yeah, that's true. Oh, my God. I'm just, my reading of this text has completely changed it often you know it's very often interesting because he brings up it's almost like his books are all in some way autobiography yeah and there's a book called Pinin, which i actually really love that book and it's about this hapless russian professor in a university and various things like that it just i often wonder what is autobiographical about lolita there's another there's another theme that runs through his books and i it does a little bit in this one, but not so much. And I don't know if we really should get off into his canon, but that I've noticed very strongly, and that is pedophilia. Mm-hmm. And there is like, well, Lolita, right. obviously. And by the way, I just want to throw this out there. We will put this in the notes that there is a really, really good book called Reading Lolita in Tehran. And it's a non, it's a nonfiction book about a woman who was caught in that revolution in Iran and she had been a professor teaching literature, and all of a sudden she has to wear the entire burqa, can't wear regular clothes anymore. Then she's not allowed to teach anymore, and you know, just the oppression really hit. So she had like a little class in her house that was a secret class where, I mean, they could have been killed probably, but they read great pieces of literature, including Lolita. And I personally really like her interpretation of Lolita because I think it gets missed. Mm. I'll say it, but you can cut it out if it's not necessary too long. I think it's interesting because especially, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast will be, podcast will be familiar with Nabokov. Yeah. But for younger people, everyone knows about Lolita and it's this internet discourse that pops up all the time where people are like, Lolita's bad actually because it's pedophilia and it's from the point of view of this guy. And then other people come in and say, no, it's good actually because it's supposed to be dissecting that yeah. and not promoting it, you know. Well, and of course the thing about Nabokov, he is complicated. Mm-hmm. He's a very complex individual. 
uh, with his intellect. So it's never going to be just like a didactic. Yeah, it's not moralistic. No, it's, it's never going to be. It's very rich and complex and human. And, You've read and it, right? Smacks in ins- of unsavory things. I haven't. Have you seen the movie? To read more of them. Yes, we because watched we, it. we watched. Okay, the movie. The movie's very good too. Yeah, but the movie I think veers more toward the fact that when this book comes out, the the discourse was always run by white males right but even if they weren't white males yeah and people who so they were looking at it from this idea of this fantasy of the lolita which is where this came from that calling somebody a lolita is that she's a nymphette she's sexually precocious she's tempting she uh, is drawing him on she's using him she's twisting him a lot around her little finger so it became that that's the byword for it where actually lolita and tehran does a very good job, I think, of extracting things from the book that show you that, in fact, what he's writing about um, is about child abuse. And it's about pedophilia from really, even though it's from his point of view, it's, he gets, it's like, it's her point of view. Because you see him and you see what he's saying and you see his obsession. And unless you really like like that, like you're a weirdo and you like that, you're going to be able to see in the text her suffering, the way she tries to get away from him, how she pushes him away. And then when she does acquiesce or when she does do something, it's merely in order to gain some agency in the relationship so that she can ultimately get away. And ultimately, as soon as she is of age enough to marry, she just marries a guy so she can get away from him. She's 16 and she gets married to some poor guy just so she can get away from his predations. So I think that when you reread the book, from the, it makes it more uncomfortable. Because if you look at She's Just a Nymphette, it kind of is like a romp. Yeah. You know? But when you really look at it and you really see that there's a third or a second voice riding underneath Humbert Humbert's voice, who is the narrator of the novel and of his experience, when you see that riding under there, but it's subtle. And I think that's the, the thing that makes it difficult for people who are looking for, like, a statement. Yeah. His books never do that. There's always multi-layers. Um, it reminds me a little bit of Remains of the Day, Ishiguro. Not in the subject matter, which because that book does not deal with pedophilia or anything like that at all. But you have this narrator who's the butler. But somehow, as he's going along, you can feel and see and interpret the author kind of peeking over the edge of that narrator and winking at you and kind of giving you like, okay, this is the subtext. This is, you know, telling that to you. It's almost like her suffering is the the subtext and the strata on which the book is built. I really want to read it. I think Nabokov is brilliant at doing that type of narration where mm. he's... He's really into unreliable narrators, and so yeah. it both plays with your perception and everything, but then it also makes it very like complex and rich, and even genre, that genre lays on top of each other in his books. And yeah, and, and then you can just sit and go, okay, it could be any of those. I don't like that. I like, so I go, okay, I'm going to choose an interpretation. Now, the next time I read it, I may choose a different interpretation. Sure. But that's how I like to roll, so yeah. there you go. And we'll see, we'll see this a lot in Pale Fire. But I, I thought I should address Lolita a little bit because it is his most famous book. And it's the one that made him rich. And it's the one that's again. had... <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, rich again. And it also is one that has a very famous movie made out of it. And he, he's written several other novels, which I've read. I've read um, Ada, ADA, which is an early book that has pedophilia in it. So I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that's a theme. And so... 
since he's so autobiographical and things come out of his life, it seems to me since he's taking the part and in Ada too, you get kind of the perspective of the victim. I'm wondering if this is what happened to him. Because there is no hint or information or scandal or anything that he had weird relationships with women or girls, with, with young, you know, young people at all. So it doesn't seem to be something he was interested in. Himself, that in some way, if, if not specifically yeah. sexually, was there something in his background that... In this book, in Pale Fire, um, the narrator, Charles... Oh, right, right, yeah. He's gay, and he has a lot of, like, relationships with, like, college-age boys at the school, and so there's that, yeah. too. So anyway, that's another theme there that I thought I should just highlight. But he is a great, great writer, and um, he, great turn of phrase, very complex plotting. So this is not like your beach read i feel like it's got such a there's such a vibrancy to the description of the text and stuff like there's mm-hmm. nothing he describes is really boring maybe the synesthesia plays into that but yeah i have to say okay so pale fire is a book that um he wrote in the fullness of his maturity and he wrote it in english originally yes and so this book came out in 1962 so you know he died in 77 so this is like right in the peak of his prime and I definitely think this is, of his books that I've read, which I've read several, like I said, this is my favorite. Because I think it's funny, it's complex, it's confusing, it's rich. So basically, this book, essentially what it's supposed to be, is a poem. It's kind of an epic poem. It's a bit long. And it's a poem written by John Shade, obviously a character in the book. And he's written this epic poet. He's a famous poet in America, and he's old. It's kind of his his slice of life opus. It's an autobiographical poem. And so the gimmick of the text is that the story actually happens in the footnotes and the annotations of the poem, which of course I love. And it's just, it's such a great way to play with form. And there's books that are really popular like House of Leaves and other books that play with that sort of footnotes deal story within a story yeah Uh, and this really i don't know if this did it first or if this is but i i feel like those books must have at least those authors must have read this david foster wallace in infinite jess i mean he you know he read this book yeah he because he probably read everything he's uh he was a genius as well i couldn't get through infinite jess a lot of people can't and other people read it multiple times so it wasn't because it was footnotes i like footnotes anyway it's interesting because in this version just to give you an idea of the book 42 pages are the poem, and then the footnotes are about 150, 160 pages. And the the conceit of the book is that John Shade had just, just finished this poem, and he is killed. He's murdered. And his neighbor and colleague at the school, whose name is Charles Kinboat, who is an exile from Zambia, Zembla. Zembla. Zembla, which is, you know, one of those tiny, many countries in the Balkans. Supposedly made yes. up, obviously. Yes. And he's he has been uh, exiled from there, or he's a, a refugee from there, or immigrant, depending on the story that you believe of the many stories that uh, Nabokov lays out about who this guy is. And you have to figure it out yourself. He does not really tell you what the final story of this guy's life is. But anyway, he's really a weirdo shall we say. Yeah. And we'll tell you more specifics. And at the time of the killing, he's there. He's on site because he lives right next door. And he grabs the poem that apparently John Shade was uh, holding. 
the which is the only draft because right. he would destroy all drafts of his poems as he finished them. This is the old timey. There were no computers, right? You know, and they were typewriters, but you know, some people just wrote by hand. Anyway, so he grabs it and he he spirits it away, and he decides that he's going to be the editor. So he's annotating the poem, and that's what the footnotes are. They're annotations on the poem that go to his history, his life, all about him, his about his relationship with, with Shade, John Shade. <laughs> and apparently John Shade thought he was just kind of a, you know, an amusing but inconsequential he, individual. Charles, the character, he's clearly... He's stalking. Well, yes. Um, but I was going to say he's intellectual. He's really funny. His, you can tell that he's, he's one of those people that's very amusing to talk to until you realize that they're you know completely they're obsessed with you and they're and they're they're uh, they're doing things like watching you through uh binoculars through your window and just kind of showing up at your house uh, and in fact you're throwing a party that he wasn't invited to and he just kind of shows up so like for example in the book he talks about his love for john shade he says our close friendship was on that higher exclusively intellectual level where one can rest from emotional troubles not share them my admiration for him was for me a sort of alpine cure. I experienced a grand sense of wonder whenever I looked at him, especially in the presence of other people, inferior people. This wonder was enhanced by my awareness of their not feeling what I felt, of their not seeing what I saw, of their taking shade for granted, instead of drenching every nerve, so to speak, in the romance of his presence. Here he is, I would say to myself, that is his head containing a brain of a different brand than that of the synthetic jellies preserved in the skulls around him. He is looking from the terrace at that distant lake. I am looking at him. I am witnessing a unique physiological phenomenon, John Shade perceiving and transforming the world, taking it in, taking it apart, recombining its elements in the very process of storing them up so as to produce at some unspecified date an organic miracle, a fusion of image and music, a line of verse. <laughs> so you see why this is delightful to read and why Charles is actually an incredibly compelling narrator. Yes, that was, that's a good one. I love that. John's wife, she knows what's what. She knows this guy's a stalker, that he's weird. She does not want his energy or his person in her house. She does not like him at all. And of course, he then, he sees her as being jealous of his closeness with John. Right. And so it's pretty clear what the, what the relationship is in the moment. But who is this guy, Charles Kimboat? What he tells us at first tells us that he was close to the king of Zembla and... So there was I, a deposed monarch because there was a, a revolution. Right. And, and so he starts to tell the story of, of the monarchy of Zembla and how the king had to run and flee the country in exile. And then as it goes on, it becomes exceedingly clear that he's hinting that he is the king of Zembla, who is now living in hiding in Appalachia in the U.S. And then ultimately he comes out and says that he is. But is he? Right. You know? And so uh, we've talked about this. Um... And does Zembla even exist? That's a question too. Because yeah. the, the, we can't know based on the book. It could be that in the universe of the story, Zembla is actually a Balkan country. And 
and in his notes, he, he says he has these conversations with his colleagues about Zembla and stuff, and the text references the name once, but he's in control of the manuscript, and right. he's editing it, so he could say anything he wants. Well, he also says that the poem uh, has many oblique references to Zembla. Right. And that he had thought that he, because he, he had, he said he told John Shade about uh, all about Zembla, and he thought John Shade was just taking his material and writing the epic poem about that. And lo and behold, the poem is about John Shade. What the heck? It has nothing to do with Charles Kinboat's life. <laughs> but but he digs in there and he goes, oh, but obviously. And then he comes up with these really tortured uh, interpretations. This reference to a butterfly reminds me of my childhood in Zembla. You know? Or no, he's saying, oh, the reference to this butterfly with the spotted wings is the very butterfly I told Charles Shade about that right. I used to chase in Zembla. Obviously, he is using my material. Right. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so he does that throughout the poem. And I mean, it's clear that John Shade is not writing about Zembla, but is this guy, the deposed monarch, but still a little loopy? Is he from Zembla and was close to the king and just is like suddenly becomes psychotic and believes he is the king? Or is he from the mental institution that's nearby? Where there was a break recently. Where there was yeah. a break in or a breakout recently. Right. And is, is he actually the guy who actually killed John Shade? I don't know. I think that's stretching it a little bit, oh, okay. but he could be. I mean, I mean, it depends how much you want to stretch it. But, you know, what? who is this guy? Yeah. And clearly you can tell through the book that the, his colleagues at the university, they all think he's strange and uncomfortable. and Yeah, and yet he works there, assuming that we believe any of the things right, he says. Right. He works there, so he must have a resume and credentials. Yeah, but does he really teach there, or does he mop the floor? Good question. I mean, gosh, only knows. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I choose to believe that he does work there, and that, he, that there is a Zembla, and he comes from Zembla, and nobody can judge his credentials because he's from Zembla, so they just believe him, or he seems yeah. to have good credentials. And he's a he's just a temporary position. And that he does have this house that he rented. From the judge who used to live there that condemned some criminals to uh, either prison or the mental hospital. And there's some hinting that the assassin in the end is actually coming after the judge, not knowing that someone else is living there that sentenced him. Right, and he sees yeah. this old guy walking, and so the judge was an old guy, so they thought it was the judge, but it was John Shade instead. And then the layer on top of that is that in Charles's mind, he starts crafting the story. He lets you know pretty early that John, John Shade was killed, and he's like, actually, this assassin was meant for the king, and that this yeah. is an assassin that was trained by the Zemblin uh, revolutionaries to come after and find the monarch and assassinate him and so then in his mind John Shade sort of was in front of him when the assassin right. came and and kind of maybe not intentionally but shielded him from the assassin which if you'll remember is something that actually happened in Nabokov's real life right exactly um, and he was also a deposed upper-class person yeah it's interesting there's some really great writing in here for example um, just a really simple description now, this is um, Charles Kimboat talking about the house in which he rented. He says, The heating system was a farce, depending as it did on registers in the floor, wherefrom the tepid exhalations of a throbbing and groaning basement furnace were transmitted to a room with the faintness of a moribund's last breath. <laughs> Gorgeous. That's a good one. That's one of the best ever. Okay. All right, I'm going to give a, a little example, which you can obviously edit uh, if it's too long or whatever, of how the uh, poetry 
and the footnotes interact and kind of the way he uses them. And John Shade writes, How ludicrous these efforts to translate into one's private tongue a public fate. Instead of poetry divinely terse, disjointed notes, insomnia's mean verse. What Kinboat does, one of the variants he says, a beautiful variant with one curious gap branches off at this point in the draft. Strange other world where all are stillborn dwell, and pets revived in invalids grown well, and minds that died before arriving there. Poor old man, swift, poor, dash, and there's a dash, poor Baudelaire. And so Kinboat says, what might that dash stand for? Unless shade gave prosodic value to the mute E in Baudelaire, which I am quite certain he never would have done in English verse. The name required there must scan as a trochee. Among the names of celebrated poets, painters, philosophers, etc., known to have become insane or to have sunk into senile imbecility, we find some suitable ones. Was Shade confronted by too much variety with nothing to help logic choose and so left a blank? Relying upon the mysterious organic force that rescues poets to fill it in at its own convenience? Or... Was there something else, some obscure intuition, some prophetic scruple that prevented him from spelling out the name of an eminent man who happened to be an intimate friend of his? Was he perhaps playing safe because a reader in his own household might have objected to that particular name being mentioned? And if it comes to that, why mention it at all in this tragic context? Dark, disturbing thoughts. So... Poor old man Swift, poor Kinboat, poor Baudelaire. Right. <laughs> That's where he's going. So he takes the poem, then he finds this, does he find this variant or this verse that Shade had taken out of the poem, and he sees this dash, and then he tries to back engineer it so that, in fact, it makes sense why it could only be his name and that Sybil, John Shade's wife, you know, invented the, the one who kept him out of the poem. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and he does that over and over again. It's great fun. And there's also a lot of very good poetry analysis that mm-hmm. in, in it. Nabokov, I mean, he has kind of free reign to, to go into etymologies and then also go into the analysis of the formal style and everything, which is pretty fun. For example, at some point, Kimboat's kind of like, this work is rather mediocre in certain ways, but there's glimmers of fire in it. To, like, <laughs> Okay, so one thing that I'm going to highlight that I marked in this book is um, it's an example of one of the many details in Nabokov's writing that I think is just so great, because it's not a mystery that Kimbo is, or at least thinks he is, like the king of Zembla and stuff. That's pretty obvious. But he he maintains this farce the entire time that it's not, oh, the king would do this, oh, the king would do that, and then share a very intimate story about him or something like that. And so he never refers to himself as the king until this specific moment where in his annotation to line 691, he says, John Shade's heart attack practically coincided with the disguised king's arrival in America, where he descended by parachute from a a chartered plane piloted by Colonel Montacute. I looked around me with enchantment and physical well-being, despite the congestion in my nose. And so between those, like, three sentences, he switches from third person to first person. So the moment that he touches down on American soil, which according to him is the very moment at which John Shade is having a heart attack that he mentions in his poem, of course, because it has (laughs) to be like this perfect coincidence. But um, 
yeah, it changes from third person to I. And so for me, that, that I guess that marks the climax of the book or the beginning of the climax. The turn, yeah, where it yeah. really turns, yeah. And uh, it takes that psychological turn where he suddenly just in one sentence abandons the, the fiction over the fiction that he's pretending he's not the king. And there's one of the other things that just creates great verisimilitude is that the book has a foreword by Charles Kinboat. It starts out, Pale Fire a poem in heroic couplets of 999 lines divided into four cantos was composed by John Francis Shade, born July 5th, 1898, died July 21st, 1959, during the last 20 days of his life at his residence in New Y, Appalachia, USA. The manuscript, mostly a fair copy from which the present text has been faithfully printed, consists of 80 medium-sized index cards, and on and on and on. So he describes minutely the cards and how he wrote on them and all that stuff. So it really creates the sense that this is a real thing. Yeah. This is a real universe. So I enjoyed that a lot. I guess we should talk a little bit about his, because it's really the bulk of the book, his time in Zembla as when he's talking in the third person about the king. Of course, telling all, all these things where there are only two people present. And the other one was obviously not him. So I, I think it's, it, it, that's how they really set that. He sets that up really well. But there are a lot of um, real details about his sexual life, about the rooms, about the food, the luxury, the danger he was in, the secret passages. I don't know. I, I felt it, that I guess one of the reasons, that even though he leaves it open to his fantasy oddly is that it's so detailed so solid so clear that it feels like it must be real but then of course we are reading a fiction right that someone wrote yeah yeah that someone made up so clearly people can make things up that seem really real you know (laughs) there's so there's um the whole piece where he's well where the king is escaping zembla because he's pursued by the revolutionaries and has a real adventure novel flavor to me so like that's when i said that he uses lots of different genres that's definitely one that he inserts in here. Uh, Nabokov does. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of storylines in this in this book, actually, because there's the Zemblin King, and then there's John Shade's narrative through his poem, and then there's also all the time that Charles spends talking about the assassin, whatever story he's made up about the assassin and how he leaves Zembla and how he travels to New York. I wanted to mention that again in an autobiographical kind of way you said that Nabokov and his wife's daughter died um and so that's something that happens to John Shade um and Sybil where they had a daughter and in the book sort of a teen and she was very I guess ugly and had a depression and maybe other struggles with mental illnesses and so she ends up maybe committing suicide by going out in a bus and walking on a frozen lake and so that's a good section of this poem that he writes is about that um, and then, of course, when Charles is annotating it, he's just like, he's like, yeah, she died, blah, blah. So anyway, about Zembla. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but there's a, a whole lot of detail in there about how the daughter would go out to the barn and she got her parents to go out there and she thought that there were these lights and that she was psychic and she was seeing these lights and stuff. So there's just, yeah, there are these incredible details where right. I'm like, this is so specific. Like, what, how, how would Nabokov think? To even write about this maybe he experienced it and he was just drawing on well i think what's, things, what but... what i think what i struggle with with the, the work and trying to make it 
satisfy me is like I, I wish that all of those things kind of came to a point where yeah. they where they they were tied together in some substantial way and I'm just think they're probably not yeah you know they're probably not um, the, the, the thing about the daughter except to make the richness of the poem because I mean out, yeah. yeah he wants to write it he's gonna write a good poem right and and so John shade has to be somebody here's the the verse in shades poem about it it was a night of thaw, a night of blow, with great excitement in the air. Black spring stood just around the corner, shivering. In the wet starlight and on the wet ground, the lake lay in the mist, its ice half drowned. A blurry shape stepped off the reedy bank into a crackling, gulping swamp and sank. I, I wanted to read at least one verse from the poem just to get more of a sense of what it is. It's kind of rhyming. I, I think that Nabokov did a great job in terms of making it just on the edge of corny, basically, mm-hmm. like skirting corniness and yet somehow retaining this rhyme scheme in a very long poem where it's full of life details. So it's more conversational. It can't be like completely epic because it's about his everyday life and there's goofy stuff in it too and everything. So I, I'm pretty impressed with the poem that he wrote, even if it's maybe the the less exciting part of the text. I don't know a lot about poetry. You know more than I do. Sure. But these are epic couplets. So there's going to be an old traditional style and rhyming, but it's used in the service of simple, mundane, everyday life. Yeah, the daughter does kill herself, but it's not a a hero. So there would have been grand themes and wars as heroes and monarchs. And and so I think that he's... It's almost an interesting inversion that the story about monarchs and all this exciting romantic stuff is in the footnotes. and the poem is, right. is not yeah is about uh, you know everyday americana essentially okay here's another example of the way he torques it so that uh, it becomes about him um, charles yes charles says this this is written against this in the margin of the draft are two lines of which only the first can be deciphered it reads the evening is the time to praise the day I feel pretty sure that my friend was trying to incorporate here something he and mrs shade had heard me quote <laughs> in my lighter-hearted moments, namely a charming quatrain from our Zemblin counterpart of the Elder Edda. Uh, you know what the Elder Edda is? It's Icelandic uh, uh, poetry from... Okay. Yeah. an epic, yeah. Yeah, epic. In an anonymous English translation. Kirby's? Question mark. The wise at nightfall praise the day, the wife when she has passed away, the ice when it is crossed, the bride when tumbled, and the horse when tied. <laughs> that's good it actually is good yeah. Yeah, yeah. and so and so he just he, you know it, there's always a way to, to make a reference to his, uh, his Zemblin past and, and how he influenced Shade right yeah so it's really um, just really delightfully written uh, it's hard to even really convey in conclusion for me this time because this was a rereading for me I read this a few years ago as well I'm reading it now, or retrospectively reading it, as John Shade and Charles Kinboat being two parts of Nabokov's sort of psyche and personal history, and him playing with them, interacting with each other. Yeah, I think that's a great reading. And if you want to just take it more for the book itself and not quite go so meta, uh, you know, it, you get to decide who is Charles Kinboat and what actually happened on that fateful day when John Shade was killed. And... You, he buries enough little hints that you could go in pretty much any direction if you decided to. I prefer to think that uh, 
Kinbo was the king of Zembla, but he was unbalanced from all this inter intermarriage, and his maybe genetically was not quite all there strong. You know, <laughs> and, uh, I don't know. It's very simplistic reading, but it, it's enjoyable to me, and it's it's a book that can be reread and reread and reread. So we highly recommend Pale Fire. Lolita is a great book. It will be challenging. And there's another one called Pinin, P-N-I-N, which I've read and I enjoyed that one very much too. And yeah, uh, this is my only. And that's your top pick. That's my the top only pick. one you've read. <laughs> it's probably one of my favorite books. Yeah, know? it's great. Incredible. All right. Thank you for having us. Yeah, guys. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Great.